Hey, all you listeners out there in internet land and beyond, welcome to this week's episode of The Imposter Podcast. Now, today we've got a very special show for you. You see, we were fortunate enough to be joined by the one and only Dr. Gregory Ball, who is a professor and the dean of the College of Behavioral and Social Sciences at the University of Maryland, which is located, I know this is going to be crazy, in my home state of Maryland, Go Ravens. And I got to say, I had a lot of fun chatting with Dean Ball in this episode. He's a really, really nice guy, uh, very brilliant researcher and scientist. And I'm just very appreciative that I got a chance to, you know, meet with him and squeezed into his very busy schedule. So you're going to learn a lot this episode. Uh, I will also just say that there are points where I'm going to interject in this in this episode very briefly and infrequently, but just to explain some concepts that me and Dean Ball are talking about. Um, so just so you're prepared and aware that that's coming your way. Other than that, I hope you enjoy it. I know you'll enjoy it. And uh, yeah, let's get this show on the road. We live in an age based on science and technology with formidable technological powers. And if we don't understand it, by we I mean the general public, if it's something that, oh, I'm not good at that, I don't know anything about it, then who is making all the decisions about science and technology that uh, are going to determine what kind of future our children live in? We've really got to start at the earliest levels with having a broader view of what education really can and should be. Because I find that with the young people we have, we are able to motivate them. Science is all around us. It's in us. Knowledge of science is power. It gives you an understanding of the forces of nature. It's not even about how much science you know. It's about how science Welcome to another episode of The Imposter, the podcast dedicated to making science more fun and enjoyable for you, the listening audience. And today I think we are definitely fulfilling that role. Uh, today we are joined by Dr. Gregory Ball, who is the professor and dean of the College of Behavioral and Social Sciences at the University of Maryland. Dr. Ball, thanks very much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Uh, just, just to let you all know, Dr. Ball runs a lab that primarily focuses on research surrounding the interrelations of hormones uh, and, and the function of hormones in the brain, as well as how hormones may function in the learning and activation of different behaviors. Uh, his lab also looks at the way in which behavioral stimuli are processed by the brain and their responses by the endocrine activity and or social behavior. Is that generally that's a pretty good summary uh broadly of the different things uh, we look at yes okay cool and and uh, a lot of your work is dealing with the avian persuasion yeah we, i i started out studying the behavior of birds in the wild and um, i got very curious about what could explain the changes that occur in these behaviors and that led me to the neuroendocrine system and Birds have been tremendously useful in trying to glean general principles uh, between hormone action and uh, the regulation of behavior. Interesting. So I, I have to ask, just starting off, what what got you into this field specifically? I mean, so um, I was uh, pre-adapted to like birds by my father, who was actually 
uh, trained in zoology in the 1930s and wanted to get a PhD in ornithology, but mm. sadly it was at the height of the depression. And so he was unable to attend graduate school. The financial resources just weren't there. Hmm. Unbeknownst to me, he had attended many ornithological meetings while he was a student at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. I, 50 years later, attended a meeting at the Field Museum in Chicago where they had pictures of previous, all the previous conferences. And my father was in three pictures oh, wow. <laughs> uh, when, when he was a student. And so... He planted the, he taught me a lot about birds. When I went to graduate school, I was initially interested in pursuing studies in the humanities. I mean, excuse me, when I went to undergraduate, I was initially interested in pursuing studies in the humanities. I'd studied Latin and Greek in high school. And then I realized that um, I was very concerned about the motivation of characters and what I read. And one of the hmm. teachers, when we were reading the Odyssey, said, look, stop asking me these questions. Go to psychology. <laughs> And uh, so I did. Uh, this is at Columbia <laughs> University, and I knew very little about the scientific study of behavior, and I took a general introductory course, and the scales fell from my eyes. <laughs> and um, I was very interested. There was no neuroscience major per se then. Um, the Society for Neuroscience had literally just started a few years before. And so it was in a course called Physiological Psychology, where the professor talked about how you could take complex brain behavior relationships and try to understand them, unpack the causality in, in a non-mammalian or non-human species. Hmm. And then I suddenly realized, wow, these birds are very useful in doing this. And I knew a lot about birds. So then I went and worked in a lab at Columbia that studied hormones in birds. And that's where it all began. Right. When I finished my undergraduate degree, uh, professor who's still at Columbia, Ray Silver, had um, introduced me to thinking about endogenous changes in hormones and the control of behavior in these doves and encouraged me to attend the Institute of Animal Behavior at Rutgers. This was one of the first programs that tried to combine biology and psychology. So my PhD at the time was called psychobiology. <laughs> that word has a great name. in favor now. Uh, it was perfectly fine mm. to capture it. We would call the field now behavioral neuroscience, and uh, with my particular interest being behavioral neuroendocrinology, because I, uh, a very important aspect of what I study is, is steroid hormone action. Right. And we are going to get into that. Um, I, I have to ask another question, which we actually talked about briefly before we started the episode. But, you know, from my experience in academia, a lot of it when you're at least applying for grants is justifying, well, what's the application to the wider community, to the, the human application? So because a lot of your research does focus on the steroidal hormones in, in birds, for example, how, how is that um, applied to human psychology or to well, human physiology? First, first a couple of uh, observations. The, the structure of the hormones and their action are, are identical among the vertebrates. Certainly, you know, testosterone that I study in the birds is the same molecule that is, it occurs in mammals, including humans. The, the cellular basis of its action is, is, is very similar, uh, if not identical in many ways. And, you know, it's very common in biology, especially neurobiology, that you pick a particular species that gives you an insight into a question more readily than some other species. So as we were discussing, the giant squid axon was essential for the elucidation 
of how the action potential works, and that elucidation applies to all species, including humans. So I just want to pause briefly and give a bit more context to what Dr. Ball is talking about when he's referencing squid in action potential. And I found a great paper online that actually summarizes it quite perfectly. The paper is called A Brief Historical Perspective, Hodgkin and Huxley, and it was published in 2012 in the Journal of Physiology. Working together in 1939 and again from 1946 to 1952, Alan Hodgkin and Andrew Huxley formed one of the most productive and influential collaborations in the history of physiology. Their work both in the Physiological Laboratory in Cambridge and at the Laboratory of the Marine Biological Association in Plymouth provided fundamental insights into nerve cell excitability. Their legacy is not only our understanding of how voltage-gated ion channels give rise to propagating action potentials, but also the very framework for studying and analyzing ion channel kinetics. Their work won them a share of the 1963 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine, as well as laying the foundations for other Nobel Prize-winning work, including that of Erwin Nieher and Bert Sackman, for their discoveries concerning the function of single ion channels in cells, and Roderick McKinnon for structural and mechanistic studies of ion channels, end quote. I will post additional information on the website, on the blog, if you're interested in reading up more about this. Um, also, quick shout out to the MBA, the Marine Biological Association. That's where myself, as well as Roe Allen and Duncan Morton, both guys you've heard on the podcast before, did our master's degrees uh, in partnership with Plymouth University. So shout out to y'all and everybody at the NBA, uh, as well as uh, it just really highlights how important Hodgkin and Huxley contributed uh, to our understanding of human physiology uh, and really physiology in general in, in neuroscience. So that's, that's just a bit of context to what uh, me and Dr. Ball were talking about. In the case of the birds, the... Um relationship between changes in steroid hormones and behavior was very apparent, especially in things like the extreme seasonal changes they have in behavior, where they're almost a different animal in the spring and the fall. You know, um, you take a bird like the red-winged blackbird, that's one of the most common birds in North America. This time of year, in February and March, they're forming territories. If you try to put males together, in, a, in an enclosure, they would literally fight to the death, killing each oh, other. Wow. If you a few weeks ago went down to Florida and saw them, say, in the Everglades, they would be hanging out in a flock, uh, working together, looking for food. And if you put them in an enclosure together, they would live together quite readily. <laughs> so in the course of a few weeks, their behavior has changed from being very socially cooperative, seemingly, to very individual and antagonistic. And... How did this happen? <laughs> um, what, what happened was is that the uh, gonads recrudesced in response to changes in day length, and they went from having negligible levels of a hormone like testosterone to having very high concentrations in the plasma. Now, what does this, a steroid hormone do? I think an important thing to realize is that they organize configurations of traits, both um, physiological and morphological, toward an organized outcome. So, you know, stress is an example where a steroid hormone, the glucocorticoids, will act in many different ways to help prepare you to deal with a stressful stimulus. 
Testosterone is very important in coordinating traits for successful reproduction. And people are used to some aspects of what testosterone does. It, in males, it increases muscles and gives them strength to do things, competition for mates, and all this kind of thing. And that's why athletes take a form of testosterone, an androgen, and abuse it in order to take advantage of the muscle building capabilities. What a lot of people don't realize is that this hormone can also act in the brain. And it acts in the brain to help activate behaviors that are needed to successfully reproduce. Mm. In the case of my birds, they start singing more in order to attract a female or to compete with other males. And what unifies these different actions is that steroid hormones bind to a receptor protein in the cell if they express it. That steroid receptor complex translocates to the nucleus and turns on genes. And the word for this is that it is a transcription factor. Hmm. It's something that can lead to the expression of genes that hadn't been expressed before. So when you see a seasonal change in behavior or morphology, suites of genes have been turned on in different tissues in order to facilitate this. Now in the brain, the steroids, in addition to having these long-term effects on changing genes, also can have shorter-term effects in modulating behavior. Now, these same sorts of things occur in humans. Think about puberty. <clears throat> puberty is a, a series of changes in morphology, physiology, and behavior that are mediated by what? Steroid hormones that occur because the gonads grow, and they work in many different tissues in order to change that. These birds that I study go through these kind of market changes every year. Now, a seasonal change isn't exactly puberty. There's some important distinctions to be made. But the basic concept that this hormone can act in multiple tissues to affect and coordinate behavior, physiology, and morphology is the same. And the birds are especially a good place to try to understand how this happens. All right. Well, that is very interesting. So I, I have... A, a few, two questions, really, in in, re, in response to that. One is, has there been any research done that looks at, um, sometimes in the animal world, it's not necessarily the strongest um, that can impress a mate, but the sneakiest, at least, you, you know, in the aquatic systems, I, there's yeah, examples. You're talking of, about extra pair copulation. Yeah. And, alternate male reproductive tactic. All right, so I'm just going to pause briefly once again and give some context to what me and Dr. Ball are talking about especially when it comes to extra pair copulation and the sneaky male. So for extra pair copulation, well, it's pretty much what it sounds like. You might have a, an animal, and we'll take birds, that are supposedly monogamous, uh, or many species are. However, they might have the cheeky little quickie on the side with a partner that is not their main mate, that is not their main partner. And so it's an extra pair. It's an extra pair that they are copulating with, that they are having sex with. So, in a nutshell, the milkman's making a few personal visits to some of those nests, if you know what I'm saying. Now, when it comes to the sneaking male theory, this is something I find very interesting. Because, you know, what you have this idea that the alpha male is the one that has first choice for mates. And the reason why is, quite frankly, because he's the biggest usually, he's physically intimidating, and he can outcompete everybody else. Now, obviously, because you need to prove your physical strength, the alpha male has to fight quite a lot. So the sneaking male comes in while the alpha male is fighting with other physically uh, competitive males. 
this sneaky other male, while the other two are doing their business, comes into the female, literally does the definition of a quickie, you know, gets his sperm in, passes his genes on real quick, and then gets out of the way before anybody knows. So that's why he's a sneaky male. And it's one way to successfully pass on your genes. So that is the context for extra pair copulation and the sneaky male theory. As I said, I'll put more links onto the blog, so check it out if you're interested uh, in learning a bit more about that. But let's get back to it. Extra pair copulation. Yeah. And alternate male reproductive tactics. Exactly. This kind of thing. So what is the testosterone levels for those males? I mean, is it the same or is it because they're yeah, using... It's, it's, it's a very interesting question. And um, this has been studied in detail in a few species. Of, among the best examples are actually in fish, like the right. midshipman fish. Exactly. Um, the, the short answer, it's hard to generalize definitively because we don't have that many cases. But it looks like that the, the, the sneakers do have a different phenotype and do have lower levels of testosterone. Hmm. And, and they go through uh, something akin to the sexual differentiation process, except sexual differentiation process leads to different sexes. This right. is within one sex where you'll have different phenotypes. And the fascinating thing, of course, is that you don't necessarily spend your whole life, depending on the species, within this mating type. Hmm. You may take the strategy for a while, and then when the situation changes, you can you can change I your see. type. Just like you know, in sex changing fish, you may live part of your life as one sex, right. and then when the male in the group ends, you will then transform into a male. This underlies a very important observation, and that is is that the neuroendocrine system is very dynamic and very responsive to the environment, and. You know, that's one of the things I consider is how photoperiod and the social milieu can lead to changes in hormones that will affect the brain and prepare the animal to interact in an appropriate adaptive way uh, for that time of year. So that, that's actually a very interesting answer. The other thing I was going to say was when it comes to, and I know it's not exactly the same as you mentioned, but for puberty, you know, people experience puberty at different rates and, mm -hmm. you know, for different periods of time, in fact. Mm -hmm. um, and as well, even if they go through it at the same time, you know, I, I didn't have as much body hair as the guy next to me, you know, right. which is genetics and stuff like that. So how does that kind of play a role? So again, we have a general principle that's relevant to my seasonal changes that's, that's re that, that, that occurs here. You know, there's been in girls and women, uh, the onset of menses has been getting younger and younger, and we're not exactly sure why. Now, part of it is, is, is and, and it, it's a multifactorial effect on these things. So part of the timing of puberty has to do with improved nutrition. In men or women, you need to have a certain level of fat depot reserves and health in order to move into reproduction. Reproduction requires an additional expenditure of energy, and the system is geared to not have you reproduce unless you're in a position to do that. Sure. Um, so that's one obvious factor. But, you know, it's, it's very intriguing that... Um, the exposure of, of boys and girls to sexual material almost assuredly continues to increase with time. Hmm. And, you know, it's a fascinating idea that the perception of sexual material may be contributing to this earlier onset of puberty. We know in studies of non-human animals that exposure to the odor of uh, sexually active 
uh, time specifics can enhance the timing of the onset of, um, you know, estracycling, things sure. like that. And in my birds, the um, timing of gonadal growth is, is, is influenced by, by the length of the day, but it can be sped up or slowed down based on whether you have a mate uh, who you're... And, and, and the interesting thing, it's not just the presence of a member of the opposite sex, but also complex experiments have done to show whether they're directing courtship at you and you're interacting can affect... There's some great experiments done in doves where they, the, the female doves will ovulate sooner if a male is, is courting them. And they set up this clever experiment where, in some cases, the male could see the female, you know, it's polarized light. In other cases, the female could see the same male, but he couldn't see her. <laughs> so one female was watching a male who was directing courtship at her. Another female was seeing the same male, but he was directing at someone else. The female who had the male directed at her started laying eggs and had hormonal changes more quickly than the one who was just observing it. Oh, so wow. you see, it, cool. it's a complex interpretation that occurs, but nonetheless, it shows how environmental stimuli can have very important effects on endocrine physiology. And one of the stimuli that I study as well is that hearing song can, can facilitate the timing of egg laying and, and ovarian growth. Um, just like your hormonal milieu affects whether or not you produce some. So th this is an interesting point that you're bringing up right now, environment and environmental stimuli. So how, can you expand even a bit more about that, but also about how age might play a role in un genetics? I mean, does that also... Well, of course, genetics underlies all of this. Right. And, um, you know, the question is getting at it and, and how... There's a very big movement now um, to start looking more at individual differences in the animal world, just as there is in the human world. Interesting. And this is a very important movement. So there's now a notion that something akin to personalities can be discerned in animals. And I, I'm loath to use that word because it, it, it encourages irresponsible anthropomorphism. But if we look at personality as a suite of traits, that corresponds to a way to approach the environment. So being risky or non-risky or things like that. Yeah. You can, and the notion would be is that you could test an animal on one set of tests and then predict how they respond in another set of tests because they have a some sort of underlying. And, and this work has been done in um, a number of songbirds, especially in Europe like great tits and things like that. It's a kind of tit mouse. It's like chickadee. Yeah. And, and it's been extremely encouraging. And I think if people are now starting to relate it to physiology, why are some females laying eggs sooner and more easily than others? And this is very important if you want to study the effects of natural selection because, of course, evolution moves forward by differential reproductive success and the, and the, the raw material if you will, is this variation within a population and how it's able to respond to challenges <laughs> in a manner that leads to increased reproductive fitness or not. Very interesting. So <clears throat> before we run out of time, I want to um, cover a few basic things. So can you, can you give kind of like a rundown for the listeners at home about the endocrine system? You use the term neuroendocrine, which I'm assuming is the linking between the brain and the endocrine right, system. Right. So the endocrine system per se has traditionally involved the pituitary, um, <clears throat> the so-called master gland, although the real master gland is the brain. 
but the pituitary, which then um, regulates other organs such as the adrenals, um, the gonads, um, testes and ovaries, and the, and the thyroid. I've focused on one class of hormones. There's a number of different ones, like the peptos, the class of hormones, or the steroids, because they have such powerful effects on the brain. The brain re releases neuropeptides which regulate pituitary function and a very important discovery of the 20th century is how the brain, the, the, the environmental world is mediated by the brain and that's how it's translated into endocrine responses. So your gonads can't see no matter what you think. <laughs> Any kind of environmental influence comes through processing the brain through the pituitary. Now that doesn't mean that the gonads don't have or other glands have autonomous activities that are important. There's evidence they have clock genes and things like that. It's, a, it's an interplay of a complex physiological system. But, um, you know, one of the exciting things is that the brain has profound effects on controlling the endocrine system, and the brain itself can synthesize hormones. We hmm. now know in certain species, like these birds I study, that you can go from cholesterol, cholesterol is the precursor of steroids, and through a series of enzymatic steps, you can synthesize a hormone like estradiol or, or testosterone in the brain by itself. You don't need the gonads. And we also have evidence that these hormones are acting in a more rapid fashion than a normal. So a, a hormone that has transcription effects, you see the effects in many hours to days to weeks to months you think about puberty yeah whereas a neurotransmitter of course it can act very quickly you know the amino acids very quickly yeah steroids can also have effects that are more in minutes uh, hmm. not exactly glutamate uh, which is an excitatory amino acid uh, that, that that works on 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 these ion channels but nonetheless have modulatory effects and so you know, one of the things I've been involved in with my colleagues is, is saying we, we have to be careful how we classify something like these steroids. They're, they're neurotransmitters, neuromodulators, and hormones. They have these, these multiple effects. And this was your 2006 study, the, is brain estradiol a hormone or a neurotransmitter? Yeah, so that was a, 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 an essay I wrote with my colleague in Belgium, Jacques Balthazard, in which we summarized a lot of work our own lab had done in birds and then work colleagues had done also on avian species, but in mammals and other species and say, look, if we take all the data and we ignore the history, you know, hormones, estradiol was originally discovered by secretion by the ovary in the periphery in the blood. And you say, oh, that's a hormone. <laughs> and, you know, we tend, we being humans, we tend to classify things. If we said, what if what it does in the brain had been discovered first? Where would it have been classified by uh, life scientists? And we say, really, it, it meets the criteria for a form of neurotransmitter. And, um, you know, it's very important for us always to be challenging these biological categories because we tend to want to slip things into these convenient boxes sometimes, yeah. which... Is, is, was neuro, sorry to cut you off. Was neuromodulators a term that you, you two had? Oh, absolutely not. No, okay. No, no. So with the discovery of neuropeptides, um, people uh, realized, you know, in the, starting in the 1970s, that your, the original transmitters that were discovered were things like acetylcholine and the biogenic amines. Sure. Where they would bind 
to postsynaptic receptors and lead to an action potential. The revolution in the discovery of neuropeptides, they didn't always in and of themselves generate an action potential, but they could affect the probability that a classical neurotransmitter would cause an action potential, and that's right. where the term neuromodulator came Okay. And we pointed okay. out that the steroid action was more akin to that. Right. All right, cool. So we're, we're running out of time, so I, I just want to bring up one more uh, one more of your your papers um, which I thought was really interesting which was the uh, 2014 paper it's one of more, your more recent ones um, which is is it useful to view the brain as a secondary sexual characteristic right and, and I wrote that with two of my colleagues Margaret McCarthy of University of Maryland School of Medicine and, and Jacques Balthazard again and it, we were asked to write this for a special issue that was um, kind of looking, it, it, that came more from evolutionary biology, saying, are, what, what are current views of, 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 of sexual selection? So just to remind you, you know, Darwin's second most important book was The Descent of Man and Selection in Relation to Sex that he wrote in 1871. The origin was, of course, published in 1859, I would argue, his second most important <laughs> book. Yeah. And in there, he tried to explain traits that seem maladaptive but still enhance reproductive fitness. These are things like a peacock's tail or large antlers or things that almost seem to be detrimental uh, to survival and therefore fitness, and yet, and yet they existed. And what he brilliantly pointed out is that these traits gave an advantage in the competition for access to mates. And that he said, you can get differential fitness due to traits which enhance your survival and your ability to garner resources and all that. You can also get differential reproductive success due to traits that give you an advantage in the competition hmm. for mates, either fighting a same sex or being chosen by the opposite sex. Both of those processes were postulated. And in this special issue, um, we had flipped into the notion that females were always the choosy species and males were competing for access to females, which there are certainly many examples of. Sure. And this has to do with the basic definition of male and female, which, of course, is gamete size. Females are the, uh, the sex which produces fewer large gametes, and males the sex that produces more abundant smaller gametes. And there have been many challenges and nuances to that. And one of the things we were asked to do was, well, the assumption always is, is that the brain just follows along. And when you have a sex difference, it's because males do something or the females don't or females do something that males don't and it's related to reproductive success. And one of the challenges that we found is that it's very hard to find an example where you can actually link a brain difference to a behavior which you can demonstrate provides an enhanced advantage in a mating competitive situation. Hmm. And that, um, you know, the study of sex differences, that they can come about in multiple ways, um, and, that, and that we need to sharpen our hypotheses about uh, linking uh, brain sex differences specifically to sexually selected traits. Now, of course, the answer is why not much progress has been made, as we talked about this beforehand, is that, you know, most research funds for the brain are focused on this kind of question. Evolutionary questions aren't asked. Most people who study the brains are trying to understand how it works, how it goes wrong, how to help people, and yeah. these kinds of 
basic fundamental questions as the brain as an adaptation are studied relatively rarely. Hmm. Well, very, very true. And, you know, there is merit to it. You know, neural de degenerative diseases, they should have their uh, kind of day in court. Well, more than their day, they should be a huge focus because of the importance they are to human health. Well, exactly. And at the end of the day, there's no point in researching if we can't take care of you know, our own species. That's right. Um, all right. Awesome. So I guess the, the last two questions I'm going to ask you real quick is where do you see this field going? Where do you see it? Yeah, yeah. So um, I think as we start to link these hormone actions more specifically to genes. So, so, so one direction is going to be even more mechanistic where we can really help to discern causal chains all the way from a organismal level experience to a set of molecular changes that result. That, that, that'll be one of the exciting things hormones can do because we have these transcription factors that can help you identify the, what's happening in genome expression to mm -hmm. lead to changes of physiology and behavior, that's going to be a very powerful... It's already is a trend. That's what sure. we're doing. The other thing is, is understanding hormones better in the context of the broader systems level of neuroscience. You know, a lot of cognitive neuroscience is studied independently of what you might want to call broadly affective neuroscience, things like emotion and uh, okay. physiological state. And, you know, a lot of the most important things cognitive systems can do is in response to changes in hormone and affective state. And that kind of organismal level is going to be very important, for, I think, for translational and our fundamental understanding of the nervous system. Hmm. Well, very exciting stuff. All right, last thing is, um, while, while you know, I have you, is there anything else you'd like to add, whether it's about psychology, neuroendocrinology, science communication, and the value, not to prod? or? Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, it's great to do these kinds of things. We need to talk about science in multiple ways. We, 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 tend, to, we tend to slip into shorthands. And, and, and lose sight of, of, of certain levels of, of complexity. You know, people say, well, gee, if we see a brain difference, that somehow must mean that the people are constrained. Uh, so if, if, if you see a difference between two individuals, whether they're male and female, older or younger, uh, different backgrounds, training, whatever. And the thing we have to remember is the brain is very dynamic. And it's responsive to environmental stimuli and sometimes what you do. And so brain variation should be considered just a starting point for a broader discussion of what gave rise to it. What is it telling us? It can often be an insight into a set of experiences rather than some sort of deterministic set of factors. Well... Dr. Ball, thank you very much for joining us today on this week's episode of The Imposter. Dr. Ball is a professor and the dean of the College of Behavioral and Social Sciences at the University of Maryland. Thank you very much, Dr. Ball. Thank you. It's my pleasure.